Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Today, the CDC and FDA following up with it have now pushed out their 2021 youth vaping stats, and I'm not certain we can call it good news, at least the way that they're framing it. Joining us today is Gregory Connolly, president of the American Vaping Association. Greg, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. No problem. So fill us in. Uh, what's the message coming out of CDC today in youth vaping? So the message out of CDC and FDA is don't look at the data, continue on with your moral panic. What we saw was the FDA and CDC released only vaping numbers for 2021. So we don't know what happened to teen smoking or other teen tobacco or nicotine product uses, usage. But what they found was that with this 2021 year, with the survey taken when students were in isolation, it was uh, administered online, that there had been a 40% plus decline in teen, so middle school and high school vaping. And that was after last year, where in the wake of Tobacco 21, right taken right before that there were coronavirus lockdowns, we saw about a decline of one third for teen vaping in 2020. So one third, 2020, 40% plus, for 2021 and they want to spin the information to act like everything that they have done in the last month is justified by this new youth data um, so the way they are presenting it it's terrible news but if you actually look at the numbers on a chart it looks a lot differently and uh, our good friend clive bates actually put together a pretty decent chart here Let's take a quick look at that. And here it is, uh, as Clive says, here is the youth vaping trend that you will not see presented by FDA tobacco and CDC tobacco free. The youth vaping epidemic, whatever it was, is basically over. Meanwhile, it still forms the foundational rationale for FDA's destruction of the vaping industry. Exactly, and charts like those are important because people uh, need to see data visualized sometimes to understand that, oh, so we are back to the levels of 2016, 2017, or slightly under those levels, when you had Scott Gottlieb going up at FDA with Mitch Zeller by his side, talking about a comprehensive new plan for nicotine addiction and nicotine use. But five years later, four years later, they are saying, well, still, everything has changed. We are still living in a Juul world, even though Juul uses has also fallen off the map. Um, they just want to keep this up, especially through the time where they get through their MDOs and, and their lawsuits. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty clear when you take a look at how they're framing this. FDA's um, headline here is youth e-cigarette use remains serious public health concern amid COVID-19 pandemic. So they toss the pandemic in there just to hammer that down. There was because there were some issues in whether or not there was a lot of youth use during the pandemic. This seems to lock that in. And almost 85% of the more than 2 million U.S. middle and high school students who used e-cigarettes used flavored e-cigarettes in 2021. Is there something specific they're trying to do here with the flavoring? Well, of course. The FDA's regulatory actions have been almost wholly focused on flavored products. And all the way back, in 2014, 2015, when you look at statements from the FDA and CDC, when you just had single digit numbers for youth usage, and the vast, vast majority of those youth were only using one to two, three to five days per month, so no signs of dependence or addiction. The FDA was still using similar rhetoric to talk about flavors all the way back then. 
So some people have this idea that if Juul had not come along or if disposables had not come along, well, we would be operating under a reasonable regulatory system. But no, this was all about delay for many years, delaying the FDA coming in and getting to that final PMTA date and the review date, because it was clear from all the way back 2011 that the FDA was going to mess this up to a degree that it would be extremely difficult for any small or medium-sized business to get through. And now it looks like FDA is using not recent youth data, but youth data from 2017 to 2018 to tell all companies that, uh, potentially all companies, that there will be no flavor uh, in legal tobacco-derived nicotine vaping products. And that's ridiculous. So are they immune to truth or are they indifferent to truth? I mean, what is their relationship, the public health authorities in the U.S.? What's their relationship to truth? Well, there are certainly propaganda groups, the Bloomberg-funded groups. They've long since passed uh, the point where they can honestly call themselves public health groups. They are activist groups for one point of view, which is prohibition of most nicotine products. But for FDA, FDA will say, if you push on them on this. We are just following the statute. And we believe that in order to show that something is appropriate for the protection of public health, it requires these longitudinal and clinical trial uh, studies. But the reality is, as you have companies that are challenging what FDA has done in federal court, the FDA could just wait until the very last minute, literally as they were sending out the first MDOs, to declare that what is essentially a product standard that if you don't have clinical trial data, if you don't have longitudinal data, your product stands no chance, zero chance, no matter how much science you have otherwise, of staying on the market. I think that's illegal. That's something FDA, uh, at the very least, should have put in pre-market guidance released way before the PMTA date came. So there's a lot of irresponsibility on the part of FDA, and there's a lot of just uh, political convenience in my mind that it is politically convenient to do what the party that is in power and heck, many people in the minority party will cheer some of what FDA has done over the last month. Um, and political convenience for bureaucrats is much easier than braveness. So last brave. last year's numbers in 2020, I believe it was around 3.6 million, something like that, in terms of youth use. And now it's down to like 1.76. So that's a massive drop um, year over year. How come that is not the headline? FDA and CDC engineered it like this. They put out their press release, I believe, early this morning with a 1 p.m. embargo, and very few reporters on a tight deadline are going to reach out to people like myself, people like Dr. Michael Siegel. Thankfully, to their credit, the Associated Press reached out to Nancy Rigotti from Harvard. Um, Politico, for their subscribers at least, we'll see if this story goes up for regular readers, uh, maybe tomorrow, they contacted me. But what you see is CNN, which no matter what your opinions of CNN are, you can at least have some hope that they would engage in journalism. CNN's Maggie Fox literally copied and pasted from the press releases from FDA and CDC, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, Truth Initiative, and the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Zero from the industry, zero from consumers, zero from researchers who are pro-harm reduction, and that's a pattern where it just seems like it's appropriate nowadays after 10 years of this debate. The debate must be settled so we can just talk to the people who agree with us. There's too much of that in journalism, but there still are some um, honest people left on the beat. 
Yeah, so it seems that those in the mainstream media, or the regime media, as some on the right like to call it, they're just happy to believe whatever public health tells them. Yeah, and increasingly, journalists and the people within newsrooms, the producers, the editors, etc., they are 25-year-olds who have never smoked, have never vaped. If they have vaped, it's just something that they've done while they were drunk at a party four years ago. They don't understand smoking. They don't understand the need for harm reduction. They don't understand how this issue uh, is being treated just like the drug war has been treated for years as a politically convenient item to bash on. And that's the end result is you have a lot of journalists who have contempt for everyday smokers. And that treatment ends up being uh, revealed in their reports. I wonder if there's some crossover in their minds, uh, those young reporters that have this contempt. I wonder if there's crossover, at least with, a, you know, another big news story going on these days where there's a ton of contempt going on for demographics that are not participating in another public health kind of an issue. And so, I mean, if that's the case, it's going to be pretty hard to kind of extract ourselves because this news right here should be game changing. It should be good news. It should be seen as... My God, we just went through this panic two and a half years ago about a volley. Well, that turned out to not be nicotine vaping. And we had a panic about Juul. Well, Juul has been eviscerated in terms of youth, youth usage. Puff Bar has 10 to almost, probably almost 10 times more usage among youth. I don't have the document in front of me at the moment. Uh, views is similarly extremely low. So these uh, actual market participants that have filed PMTAs, that have put science behind their products, uh, they could just get MDO'd, uh, especially views with their many flavors on the uh, on the product application list. They could get MDO'd just like every other small, medium-sized company has before it. Right. Let's take a quick look at uh, your press release uh, today that went out uh, early this morning, which is great. Uh, so CDC teen vaping fell by over 40% in 2021. Now that's a headline that makes sense. Simple honest to the point. Uh, I'll pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, new data underscores arbitrary nature of FDA's recent bans on vaping products. And I think it's worth spending a little bit more time on this because we're talking about the entire justification and rationale of destroying, you know, a, a well over a billion dollars. It's multi-billion dollar a year business. Keep getting confused in Canada, it's close to a billion, but down in the US, we're talking 10, you know, what, 10, 15 billion dollar business? Something like that. It's very hard to get estimates when you're talking about an industry that is not uh, federally taxed that you can really crunch the numbers for, but that's a reasonable estimate at this point. So let me um, ask you then about taxes because, you know, there's other issues here. There are all the ancillary issues that, you know, come from uh, the lying that's been going on by public health in this issue. One of them is taxes. And you've got in, at the federal level a potential excise tax that um, could be coming up with wrapped around the COVID infrastructure bills. What do we know about that? Sure. So there are a couple different bills. Uh, there's the averting the government shutdown, which they've already done. Uh, there is an infrastructure bill. And then there is a big, uh, what has been pitched as a $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation slash human infrastructure bill. And what the House Ways and Means Committee did was they had previously scored. Back in 2019, we had a nasty bill that would have tried to uh, make the tax between vaping products and cigarettes equivalent. 
that got out of committee in the House, but then never got a vote. So but they had a score on that and they had a bill in the Senate with a similar goal, but with uh, equalizing the tax on all nicotine and tobacco products, raising the cigarette tax by a dollar and similarly raising or enacting taxes on all the other products with with a goal, not a goal that they uh, have actually met of having the tax be equivalent. And they threw this in where you have a two dollar cigarette or the federal cigarette tax goes to approximately two dollars. You end up with like a two thousand eight two thousand plus percent tax hike on smokeless tobacco, including uh, snus. You get a gigantic tax on nicotine pouches and vaping products where it works out to, I believe, about five point three cents per milligram of nicotine. So for uh, any product that turns into a lot, even for a four pack of jewel pods, you would end up paying more taxes on that four pack of jewel pods than you would buying four packs of deadly combustible cigarettes. So that's an insane level of tax that will cause more smoking. The good news is that while anything can happen in Washington and everything is still fluid, there are a number of Democrats that have stood up to say, this is a bad idea. And with the narrow margins um, in the house, Plus, you have Cinema and Mansion, West Virginia and Arizona senators who don't seem to be favorable to raising taxes on people that make under $400,000 a year. Uh, I think we have made a convincing argument, the entire sector, and that um, while you still should go to CASA.org, do the call to action, call your congressman, call your senator to state your opposition. But I have uh, some confidence, a light level of confidence that we'll make it out of at least this fight. So that is on that excise tax. That's actually interesting. Good news. Yes. And you don't want to you don't want to suppress some of the support from those out there that might be listening. But it is uh, heartening to hear that there might be a slight win there. Yes, I think we still need pressure. They, we can't have them forget this issue. We can't have tobacco free kids and cancer and heart all of a sudden spend one hundred thousand dollars and generate a thousand phone calls. Um, so we need you to continue to reach out and continue to ask others to reach out. You know, we just had the 15 past presidents of uh, the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco just release, you know, that major paper in support of vaping as a tool for harm reduction. And it's gotten some press um, out there. Obviously, on our side, there's been tons of press, but I think it has cracked through a little bit into some of the mainstream media. Have you seen any shift at all? Um, amongst journalists um, and others out there, maybe politicians who might have you know, been seeing some of this material? A marginal effect at the edges for some, but ultimately it's never going to be one thing that changes perceptions and changes people's minds. It's going to be continuing operations of getting out good news and uh, encouraging people in the public health community to, to stand up for what they believe in. So, uh, that has helped the AP, Stat News, several others have referenced that report and in con- contrasting the opinions within the public health community. That's what we need is for a lot of these journalists and politicians to recognize there is at least a debate because many of them, if you ask them, is there a debate within the public health community or is it just industry versus public health? A lot of them would say, oh, this is just industry versus the, the great Uh, nice public health advocates. We need to get away from that argument. So let's discuss FDA's PMTA process and this whole uh, marketing denial orders, which seems to 
Oh, have been a lot. I think the FDA has said now that they have rejected 93% of all of the product applications for approval for market authorization. What's the status of that? It has been a bloodbath. And unfortunately, FDA did not bother to inform companies a year, two years ago of what their requirements would be, even though they had that data right in front of them a year or two years ago. And you had a lot of good American companies, hundreds of them, that applied through this process with good intentions. And they applied through the process expecting, um, in some cases, that they would receive a deficiency letter and at least be given the opportunity to maybe make amendments to their application to spend money if they thought they had a chance of success. Other companies actually did submit uh, $8 million, $12 million, $17 million worth of science or numbers that I've heard for some companies. And they ended up in the end being treated um, as a company uh, where their PMTA was graded on a checkbox system. Just like the guy who spent $1,000 on their PMTA, if the $17 million people uh, didn't matter the quality of their science, if they weren't able to check all the necessary boxes, they were simply banned. And that's what FDA has done. Uh, they started with the easy targets. Um, they've now worked their way through something like 260 companies that we know about, plus I believe another 60 that were not listed publicly. Um, so there are still some companies left. Uh, the big companies are left, of course. Um, and that will be interesting. There's starting to be lawsuits filed. Uh, there's going to be more, I anticipate more, and we'll really see potentially something bigger if, for example, R.J. Reynolds gets their flavors for vaping products uh, not authorized. So how do you mean? Why, would that, why is that a bellwether? Because that's Reynolds suing, one of the big guys, not one of these uh, companies that journalists, that public health, that politicians have never heard of. They know this is a crack legal team, even if their lawyers may be just as good as the ones on the Turning Point or on the Magellan case or on any of the other filings. So uh, expand on that for us a little bit. Uh, we've curated some stuff on the Turning Points lawsuit and so forth, but just kind of give a scope to our viewers in terms of how much pushback is there going on from the industry, big and small, with regards to these marketing denial orders? So there is, and the two lawsuits that have been filed, the one with the most level of detail in their initial argument, because this is not, these are not briefs, these are just fi initial filings, is the Magellan case. And in the Magellan case, which is demand vape in uh, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York, they argue that uh, by FDA sent out letters with all their PMTAs saying that based off of data from 2017 to 2018, showing how much interest there was in flavors among youth, that unless they had six month longitudinal or certain length of clinical trial data, then the application would automatically get rejected, get MDO'd. And you had to do in the grading checklist that FDA provided, uh, ask things to their reviewers like, do they compare the flavored product to a tobacco flavor? And they wanna see on paper, and they're requiring that they see on paper through very expensive uh, science that each individual product that you apply for performs better than a tobacco flavor. And you'll also have to show that your product is not going to cause issues with youth usage. And that, um, especially the first part, 
is a very expensive problem and only a, a very tiny handful of companies will likely have been able to present that data to FDA. Amazing, amazing. So, what so these companies are arguing, so these companies are arguing before the Court of Appeals that the FDA uh, illegally created a new standard and that uh, the appropriate for the protection of public health does not require you to do a clinical trial or longitudinal study comparing flavored to tobacco and that FDA never even hinted at the idea that this kind of thing would be required at the 11 or 11.59, not even the 11th hour. And that is the ridiculousness. And so these companies, hopefully, uh, they'll also file motions for stays to stop enforcement. So they'll be able to continue selling products. Uh, but these actions don't won't help. These are all the medium-sized and big guys that are filing these suits. Unfortunately, these smaller guys, while well, they still, uh, through the, the American Manu Vapor Manufacturers Association, Amanda Wheeler's group, they absolutely should file administrative appeals. But uh, filing to court of appeals is quite expensive. So how is this all shaking out for, you know, the 10,000 or so retailers, the local mom and pop shops and so forth and small chains and this and that, that obviously, you know, have that customer impact. They're the ones that are out there really driving the open systems market. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, it is unquestionably bad news because I've gotten so many phone calls from people on the verge of tears wondering, am I going to be able to pay my employees? Do I need to shut down tomorrow? Do I need to just take everything off my shelf, even though the FDA hasn't even put out a list of every product that they've sent an MDO to? It's, it's awful to hear those perspectives. Um, and it's reality for some. But you, the FDA will enforce, particularly against manufacturers themselves, that the manufacturers themselves continue to offer tobacco-derived nicotine vaping products that have not gotten PMTA authorizations or not still on the chopping block where no decision has been made at FDA. But for individual retailers, the FDA generally polices with warning letters. So companies do not need, do not have to shut their doors just because every product on their shelf has received an MDO. And that's not legal advice because of course you should not sell anything that does not have authorization under federal law. But the reality is most enforcement is done with warning letters. And there is also the uh, synthetic nicotine market, which has its issues, is going to have its challenges at the state level. But when you're a small business and you have no other choice, uh, you're going to accept innovation. And that's what synthetic nicotine represents at the moment is an innovation. Yeah, and the Truth Initiative, which of course is a massive uh, group uh, and enemy of vaping, no doubt this is their email out today. And of course, they actually are pushing the FDA. There's no clapping for FDA and what they're doing yet because they haven't yet destroyed completely 100% the vaping industry because groups like Truth Initiative are all about zero vaping. They want every single product off the market. And here they are saying, ending youth e-cigarette epidemic at risk if FDA doesn't act fast to remove flavors and fully regulate products as industry quickly innovates. And that reference to quick innovation is, of course, the synthetic nicotine uh, that you were just talking about. Yeah, this is just old style prohibition playbook. It's never enough. Any access to these products by adults they will phrase a way to get these products into the hands of youth. If vaping went down to 5%, 
they would be saying that is 5% too many. Um, 1%, that is 1% too many. We need to protect that 1%. Um, and what they don't realize, and more, or rather just won't acknowledge, is that even if you declare synthetic nicotine to be a drug, or if the FDA uh, through Congress gets it regulated as a tobacco product, or states ban the sale of synthetic nicotine, or only allow the sale of products with PMTAs, that's a drug war tactic that's not going to work. Disposables in particular are never going away. You can try and you should police bad actors, but if everyone is a bad actor, well, good luck. You're not going to get rid of them and you may end up actually increasing um, among, among those who are using the products, increasing their interest in continuing. So among uh, the retailers out there, we certainly heard that there is a sense of non-compliance. Is that accurate? Um, that's their choice. I do not know exactly what uh, the pulse of the industry is. And if they are in a non-compliant mood, um, that is their business. And I urge them not to broadcast that. Pretty simple. Uh, don't go out on Facebook and say F the FDA like one or two people have done. Um, that's not going to end well for you in the future. Um, but. I think the industry is looking at not only the lawsuits, the legal route, but also the synthetic nicotine route, which if you go that route, you are not denying compliance. There is no thing for you to comply with at the FDA level at the moment, and you are operating a legal business. So it does seem to appear that that route might be, um, might be a, a profitable route to take. Let me ask you, I've never used a product that's got uh, synthetic nicotine in. I don't know if you have, but what is, what's the overall uh, assumption on that? Is it decent? Does it work well? There are different versions of it. Um, I'm not going to critique individual blends, but there's, there's one company that seems to be uh, getting market share uh, among the distributors who are considering switching, and good for them. The product seems to match tobacco-derived chemically in terms of delivery, in terms of taste. Um, there have been products in the past, synthetic products in the past, that uh, don't provide a, a, a great experience, don't provide a great taste. But I think there's been innovation uh, on that side of the market that has taken taken away some of those issues. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot going on. I mean, you know, clearly it does feel that the hour is very late for the vaping industry in the United States. Oh, yeah. People uh, don't understand or haven't yet coped with just what this means. Because, of course, the anti-organizations want to get rid of vaping, want to get rid of any kind of vaping that's in their blood. But what you don't realize is, or what some people don't realize, is that anyone who does receive a PMTA, whether it is Juul or Reynolds, or even uh, Enjoy, who's always generally been a good company. Anyone with money with a PMTA is going to want to protect the investment that they spent potentially tens of millions of dollars on. They're not going to sit back and have Puff Bar out there unregulated selling synthetic nicotine disposables. Um, and by extension, they're not going to want Joe selling synthetic nicotine e-liquids that he's purchasing from a distributor who got MDO'd and then moved on to that. So at the state level, there's going to be threats. And if this industry 
does not truly get serious, then you could end up very quickly with more than a dozen, more than two dozen states just banning any product that doesn't have a PMTA. And that could end up impacting into the, the marijuana vaping market uh, because none of those products are going through the PMTA process, but it certainly will be targeted. Uh, if not through, for PMTAs, it will be targeted specifically at synthetic nicotine products. Right. So that's that's a multi-layered uh, comment you just made. I think the first part I'd like to address, because it definitely is worth addressing, is that is that marketing approval for Juul or Vue, say, for instance, these huge companies, it's going to turn them into actual major enemies of those that are still trying to operate on the margins? Most likely. And it's possible that many companies will actually receive PMTAs, just that uh, a lot of these companies will maybe get PMTAs for only tobacco and menthol flavor, which are useless uh, and worthless to many of the companies on that list. Uh, but the fact that they will have PMTAs and they will have a reason to defend it and a reason, and part of it is a very good reason. The state politicians and state policymakers are tired of waiting for a sound regulated market. They've heard for years, oh, the FDA is coming, you don't need to do anything. And now we're going to have to turn around or portions of the industry are going to have to turn around and say, oh, we told you to wait all these years, a decade plus. But now they actually came in and they were really bad at this. So please allow our businesses to continue to exist all, <clears throat> all while we have, all while we have this problem uh, with products that are disposable like puff bars. Yeah. Well, Greg, I mean, I, I'm a bit shocked about how this continue, continually keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Let me ask you about the ICOS um, uh, lawsuits and patents uh, uh, disputes around that. Some major uh, things have just happened recently on that as well. Sure. So this industry, the nicotine vaping side, is very fortunate that there has been so much innovation happening in China that there have not been just extensive, deep, incredibly expensive patent wars happening, particularly on the open vaping side. Because on the heat not burn side, where there's uh, big tobacco involved, big interests, big expensive lawyers, brilliant people, they always find ways to sue each other. And there is an ongoing patent lawsuit, not only in the United States, but in other countries. Uh, but the one in the US is between PMI, which makes ICOS, and BAT, British American Tobacco, which makes GLOW. And both heat not burn systems are great for adult smokers who want something similar to a cigarette, want to get off cigarettes, but only one of them, ICOS, is actually approved, authorized for sale in the U.S., not just through PMTA pathway, but also the modified risk tobacco product pathway. And BAT is saying that PMI infringed on their patent. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not a patent attorney, thank God. But what I can say is the U.S. Trade Commission has put down a ruling where eventually in the next couple months, it could be illegal. Uh, PMI could be barred from importing ICOS devices into the United States. And normally, you know, you have patent wars. Sometimes there are winners. Sometimes there are losers. But usually in that case, there's another option. There's another heat not burn product that would be available to smokers. But uh, that's not the case in the U.S. So you may have some people that have already switched to ICOS. Maybe they'll switch to nicotine vaping or snus or nicotine pouches 
but you know, human behavior, sometimes it's not rational. And I think many of them will end up returning back to cigarettes if this happens, uh, which I don't care if it's only 10 people or 100 people, it's cruel and shouldn't happen. Well, clearly, if you were still a cigarette smoker, why in the hell would you want to get involved with vaping? Because it's a mess and very, very unstable. Yeah, yeah, welcome to the world of uh, tobacco, unfortunately, in the 21st century. That's amazing. Well, Gregory, thank you very much for joining us again today. No problem. Thank you.